What we look for is, are the founders really passionate about this problem? Is this problem large enough? Do the founders have a unique advantage and insight about that problem? Do they have some techn technology insight? Do they have some domain deep experience that they have the advantage to win to solve that particular problem? And are these founders committed to the long term to build something big? I need some traction. You need some traction. Let's get some traction. Hey, what's up, innovators, entrepreneurs, visionaries, and disruptors? This is your Traction Podcast host, Lloyd Lobo. We're a community of over 100,000 people, just like yourself, on a mission to help you get the methods, the money, and the madness to explode your business growth. Featuring stories and tactical advice straight from those who've done it before, like Shopify, Twilio, Asana, and many more. This episode is brought to you by Boast.ai. Each year, the U.S. and Canadian governments give out billions of dollars in R&D tax credits and innovation incentives to fund businesses like yours. But the application process is cumbersome, prone to frustrating audits, and receiving the money can take up to 16 months. Boast.ai gets you access to research and development tax credits and innovation funding opportunities without the headache and red tape. Join thousands of North American companies leveraging Boast AI software to maximize cashback. Check out boast.ai. This episode is also brought to you by Launch Academy, an international tech hub that provides mentorship, resources, network, and the environment for entrepreneurs to launch, fund, and grow their startups. Since 2012, Launch Academy has incubated over 6,000 entrepreneurs, of which 300 have grown their startups past seed and series A and have collectively raised over a $1.2 billion in funding. To learn more about Launch Academy's programs, check out launchacademy.ca. Super excited here for today's session. Our serial entrepreneur and one of the top technology entrepreneurs I know first came to traction in 2018, I think, after he sold his previous company, App Dynamics which provided software engineers insights into code performance. And AppDynamics was acquired by Cisco for 3.7 billion. And the funniest story there was Jyoti was the closing keynote speaker and he was running a little late and TechCrunch Frederick asked Jyoti that <laughs> after such a big acquisition, are you still flying coach or are you flying private? But um, one of the most humble people I've met in my life, super humble entrepreneur. Today, he's the founder and CEO of high, two high growth technology companies, Harness and then Traceable AI. Harness was recently valued at 1.7 billion. And then Jyoti also founded Unusual Ventures to bring the experience that he had and his team had, as well as capital to early stage technology companies. And they have already in a short amount of time, 600 million under management. Jyoti has received Forbes Best Cloud Computing CEO to work for, Best CEO by San Francisco Business Times, and Entrepreneur of the Year. So he, Jyoti is, has a BS in computer science from IIT. If people are not familiar with IIT, it's probably one of the top universities for engineering on the planet. It's actually harder to get into IIT than it is to get into I MIT. 
And Jyoti has more than 25 patents under his name. Jyoti, thanks for joining us. How's 2021 going for you? Well, 2021, better than 2020. Great to be uh, chatting with you again. It was a few years ago when we first chatted on a, in a forum or a discussion like this. It's, it's 2020 and the last uh, 15 17 months have been strange and hard and as humans we survive through it and we adapt and we change i'm excited and bullish about the the new post-pandemic future yeah definitely pain is the precondition for growth walk us through your background i gave a quick overview of you but how did you get into entrepreneurship you super smart it's almost impossible to get into iit and then you got into entrepreneurship did app dynamics sold it and now you have a number of ventures give us your background sure so my background i grew up in a small town in in india and in, in uh, rajasthan which is the northwest part of india you know my dad had, over there had a small mom and pop kind of a shop and a business so i grew up watching business and looking at business. A lot of people in my family, my uncles and cousins, and I, they all had these small mom and pop shops and businesses. So I was always fascinated by business. I also like tech and technology and math and science. So, you know, I tried to get into IIT, got in there, studied computer science. So to me, it was a perfect combo. Business and technology is what I, I the two things I liked as a when I was growing up. So after IIT, I was, most people at that time would normally go and, you know, get a master's degree or go for PhDs and all. And I was fascinated by startups. And so I, I wanted to come to Silicon Valley and work in startups. And but so, so I, I just started applying to different startups in Silicon Valley. And one of them eventually hired me and I, I came here. And my plan was that I would work in startups, you know, one startup or two startups for a few years learn like you know how do they work and then start my own because i was just fascinated by entrepreneurship startups and and tech in, in general it took a little bit longer than i thought because i came here on a visa and on a work visa you come here you are not allowed to start a company it's just ridiculous that you are not allowed to but so you have to wait until you get a green card to do that i waited for that and i had no shortage of ideas or problems i wanted to solve and Abdanomics was the, the the first one I got excited, very excited about, and I started that. That's amazing. You sold App Dynamics, and then you got into a number of ventures, but you started Unusual first, right? Did Unusual come first, or did Harness come first? Harness came first. Yes, give, give us the background, because it's very interesting. I, I often wonder, like, I'm struggling to catch the bus after the 23 million raise, and you got Harness, mm-hmm. and you got Traceable, you got Unusual Ventures. How do you do it all? How did you come up with this concept? <laughs> well, it all comes down to what you enjoy and like to do. So after AppDynamics was sold, I was in this kind of, let's say, figuring out mode of what do I want to do? And initially my first thought was I should retire. I don't need to work anymore. I was fortunate enough. There was plenty of money that I made with the AppDynamics acquisition. And I tried to retire. That was the first thing. So I actually retired for about six months and I have a big list of things on I wanted to go to Africa for a safari and wanted to hike Machu Picchu and wanted to go to Bhutan and see the fjords in Norway and all that list was done in six months and after six months I was like okay I need to do something that I'm just not ready to retire fully and what I realized is I like two things I like building companies and it's hard building companies is hard building products is hard you struggle in the market you find you compete you have to do all sort of things in the startup journey, but I enjoy it. I enjoyed it in AppDynamics. So why won't I do it again if I enjoyed it? So that's one thing I, it was pretty clear to me. That's mm-hmm. something I really like to do. The second thing I also realized is that I like to help other founders. 
uh, other founders who are going through similar kind of journeys can help them in whichever ways with my experience, my lesson, some guidance, mentorship through investing. So that's what I thought. Can I find a model where I can do both? And and obviously I started with stop you know building building the the building new companies in areas I'm very excited and passionate about. But then eventually I also co-founded Unusual Ventures with my partner John Virianis uh, there, so that we can create this kind of a model to uh, to to help founders at the earlier stages. Right? How do I do it all? It really comes to having the right people as your partners and your key leaders and team members. That's what allows to 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 scale. So I, I look at you know the only the only two secrets. One is only do things that you enjoy. Like it's if you're doing it for purposes which is, you, know, you don't enjoy it, you're doing it so you gain something and then you will enjoy your life. Then it's hard to keep going. But to me, this is what I enjoy. I could be doing this until I'm eight years old. I love doing this. And second is having the right people. If you have right people as partners in your team, it just becomes easy. Definitely. I think the job of a great leader is to build, inspire, and motivate a team to deliver. That's what I've consistently heard. If you find the right people, it makes uh, magic happen. So let's let's go into this. You built App Dynamics. How long did it take App Dynamics to get to a billion in valuation? Because on because for, for Harness, it seemed very quick. Yeah, App Dynamics. It took about uh, I would say seven years to get to a billion in valuation. And Harness, it was much faster. Harness, it was about four years. And we are on a much faster trajectory. And there is some advantage of doing it the second time that you know what's coming. You can execute a bit better. You get, but also the time has changed. When I was doing AppDynamics, now this was early 2010s, getting to 100 million ARR was, a, let's say, a, a bit harder than if you're doing it today, getting to 100 million ARR. Because the, the markets for like, you know, software, just software and technology have grown. The execution models have matured more. You could do much more with less number of people. It's the there's just much more efficiency in the in, in everything uh, that you could you there is the opportunity to grow faster now. At like when I was doing App Dynamics, a uh, billion dollar was like this ultimate magic number. If you get to a billion dollar valuation, that was like the, the biggest achievement you could get in the startup world. It's not that anymore. <laughs> now it's, you know, if you don't, now there's, because it's possible to be Decacons and it's possible to be $10 billion, $20 billion companies. So if you like the very, very best of the startups now, the, the, the bar has moved there now, which is great for the entire startup ecosystem. That the bar is is higher. It's you could build even bigger companies than a billion dollar value company that that was used to be the bar eight years ago, ten years ago. I think there's one law there, right? They often say in product, yesterday's uh, performance feature becomes today's, uh, or yes, yesterday's wow feature becomes today's performance piece feature and becomes yeah. tomorrow's table stakes. So I huh? think next year one billion is a table stake. Otherwise, <laughs> you're a lifestyle business. They'll start telling people. Uh-huh. But, but the but the other thing is you had some key lessons you probably learned at App Dynamics it uh-huh. changed the way you operate uh, your ventures right now. And probably mm-hmm. one thing that doesn't, uh, probably not one of the factors, but if you ask most people what accelerated digital transformation in their companies at the enterprise level, the answer by far is COVID. So COVID has, has made some of that adjustment too. But what did you do differently this time? What did you learn from App Dynamics that you said, I'm not going to do it and it gave you some speed? I think the biggest lesson I learned uh, from App Dynamics and yet, App Dynamics, I was first time founder. I started and I, when I was in my late 20s. 
when I started Abdonomics, I never managed a single person before. I was I was an engineer and architect uh, there in my startup jobs before. So I knew tech, I knew product, but I didn't knew the rest of like, you know, how do you manage people? How do you recruit people? How do you build business? How do you do, you know, go to market sales, all sort of things like, and how do you build a company? And so there was a lot of learning that happened on the job as I went through it, right? But when I simplify, when I look at like, you know, okay, if I just have to summarize all the learnings and I have to use it in my next company harness, what is the summary of it? And to me, it came down to, I call it a very simple formula. It's my simple five-point formula. A simple five-point formula is, uh, there are five things to it. One is you have to make sure your market is large. Your addressable market that you are going after is not very small. And you are constantly working to make it larger. And that's the second part. This, 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 you're working on it to make it larger is very important that you start with something and you keep expanding it and expanding and expanding it. So you're, the market need is getting bigger and bigger. It's not getting smaller every year. So that's the first part of the, the, the formula that you have to find that the market need is getting bigger every year. And the second part is you got to shoot to build the best product in your market, like in the, at least in the top three. If it's, in the, if it's in the top three products in whatever the problem space you are in, everything becomes much simpler and easier to execute on. So that's really the second part of the formula. The third part of the formula is very top-notch uh, sales execution. So the, many times you could have a large market, really best product in the market, but your sales, ex, you didn't focus on sales execution. And a lot of founders who come from product and engineering background, we don't know sales and marketing and we don't know how to execute on sales and we undervalue it also and not put the right effort and energy into it. So that is really is completely wrong. As a company, you have to excel that sales execution is your strength in, in many ways, in addition to building the best product in the market. So you have to combine that. The fourth is take care of your customers, like and obsessed with taking care of your customers. If you acquire a customer, just take care of them. And every business likes to say it, but you just, I like to believe in that you just have to obsess with it. And fifth, is the culture. Like you have to put a lot of focus on the right culture in the company where you're bringing that the culture is open, collaborative, transparent. People like to work there. People like to thrive there, et cetera. Right? And that's it. Like if you get these five things, everything will happen. That's how I think of it. So when I look at my building other companies, I put my lens with these five and I got to focus on that at a, at a macro level, these five, are we meeting these or not? And I tell every employee in the company, by the way, everyone we hire, I tell them, okay, these are the five things. And if you think you're not doing a good job in any of these, or we are starting to get in a bad place on any of these, we should talk about it. Let me know. Let everyone know. We should have debate and discussions on that. But that's really the formula from my learning from Abdanamics that I'd like to bring into Harness and Traceable and other companies. This is fantastic, actually. I want to throw the questions I had uh, curated and I'm dive into dive into these. <laughs> this is this is way more yeah, interesting. Yeah, why not? Let's- Let's try, start with the large TAM here, right? You said constantly working to uh, make the TAM bigger. Now, mm-hmm. a lot of people, they have this, especially engineers, I'm an engineer too. We have this shiny object system syndrome, right? We, you, there's something else comes up. You, you say you're working on a focused market, but maybe an enterprise deal comes up and then you run there and something. Mm-hmm. How do you like focus on a TAM, but also and make it larger, but also stay focused because as an early company, you could completely kill yourself by running in different directions, right? Yeah, yeah. You don't want to do run in different directions. You want to start with the TAM of a use case or some use case or some segment. Like you can slice it by by a use case, by a market segment, by SMB versus enterprise, by industry vertical, whatever you care about. And you got to do a very good job at that. Once you do that, then you expand the TAM to the next segment, use case, uh, vertical, when you, then you do that, you have to keep expanding to the third use case, vertical segment, whatever it is, and then the fourth one. So you, that's how you are expanding. But you have to do a good job in each one of those. If you're not doing a good job in those and you kind of chase the, 
you did you, your job is half done in the first use case and you chase the second one and you did 20% of the work there and then you chase the third one and you did 10% of the work there and you chase the fourth one that's totally wrong so you got to get one thing and then keep moving to it so the formula that i have roughly used in abdynamics and adharness also now at any point of time about two third of your engineering investment and product investment goes into the existing tam that we or the existing use cases or or tam that you are addressing and one third goes into expanding your tam and the one third that you are putting this year to expand your tam will become next year part of your ex- your existing tam now and then the year after the there will be new one third that you will invest in putting tam so that's the rough rule of thumb i have mostly followed so you still have to put two third in your existing tam and then the rest goes into expanding the to the to the to the you getting your tam bigger definitely now at app dynamics by the time you sold um what percentage of the company was the product you started with and and what percentage was new products sort of thing did you yeah. expand did you add significant new products new features what did that look like by the time yeah, you- yeah we definitely did so when you know it's Abdanis was about monitoring and troubleshooting your software applications when it was like monitoring diagnostic troubleshooting systems for all kind of software apps so we started by very by focusing initially on apps written in java as a programming language so that was like you know if if you have a app written in java we are the we were the best monitoring and troubleshooting product and we focused on that for and once we did a good job at it then we started expanding to other programming languages you know dotnet and php and python and so that's how we expanded the tam systematically on there but then once we did that we started moving to beyond your code can we watch your databases and what's the impact of performance or like do you need monitoring and diagnostics for those do we can we monitor your mobile devices and put the monitoring and diagnostics on those so that's how we would keep expanding our tam so by the time we sold the company at that time you're around it's around around 250 millionish in in business and of for 250 out of 250 million the original product which was our java application monitoring and troubleshooting that was about 50 to 60% of the revenue and the other 40 50% was coming from the the areas that we expanded into but now is actually at dynamics business in is which was acquired by cisco is around 750 800 million of revenue as part of cisco and a lot of that has come from the products we are building the newer products we are expanding into as well so that allows you to fuel a lot of growth and that's the main at, at harness we do the same thing you start with one area and one use case and you do extremely good job at it then you keep adding to the next and the next your team keeps growing and your you get the cross sell uh, you know opportunity you get up sell opportunities you get like you know you become from a product to a platform and it drives high growth and it drives efficiency in the business as well because the cost of selling more to your existing customer is is much lesser than finding a brand new customer base change at all like when i say change meaning what you were i think at app dynamics going after enterprise did that mm-hmm. profile or, or change over time or stayed more or less the same selling more basically upselling versus going to net new yeah the profile change over time yes when we started at abdynamics we were selling to both smb and enterprise and our business was like a good mix of both over time our business shifted more towards enterprise and less towards smb and we put our more of our energy and focus on on enterprise and with enterprise like you know if we as we're building and expanding our product portfolio if you have a large enterprise as a customer and is happy with your product number 1 and you have an adjacent product number 2 it's really easy to sell to them and if they're happy with that you have a new adjacent product number 3 you can sell that so then we started our focus shifted more and more towards enterprise uh, over time at harness my new company that's one thing i'm doing differently that i'm actually making sure that we are always very good in addressing both segments 
So we we, are, we have almost a, a rough model that we are shooting for that about 60, 65% of our business comes from enterprise, which is the large major, which is a majority of it. But we have 35, 40% of our business comes from the SMB market as well. So we, and so, you know, with, and the advantage of that is like, you know, you're, if you're also selling into SMB, you have to make sure your product is simple and easy for someone to get going in SMB fast. And to me, that is a very valuable thing that is also extremely helpful in large enterprises these days. So it, it creates, it forces your engineering and your product to design products that are simple and easy. And then you can t- also take into large enterprise and the simple and easy creates higher velocity in your, when you go to market. Definitely. Now your next point was build the best product in the market, right? How do you start? Like how should startups think about building products as they go from idea to product market fit and then mm-hmm. hyper growth? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good question. And that's probably the, the, the hardest thing to achieve. Like it's easy to say, build the best product in the market, but how do you achieve it? Right. I, I look at it as you just have to keep at it. The, the main thing is if you're in an existing market, which majority of the times company startups would be, you have to have a major binary differentiator in your product approach. Like when you launch the product, like if you don't have a binary differentiator, this is the thing that's fundamentally different compared to the, the current generation of products for this thing. It's very hard to for you to be the best product in there, right? So you build around those core binary differentiators. And I would not even launch the product until I have it figured out that what is the core binary differentiator? Like, you know, so to me, it's like that the entire product has to be built around that first. If you're going in a brand new market where there's not too many legacy uh, incumbents, that's a different one. That's to me is you just, it's, you're competing against nothing, that there's really nothing. It's a brand new market. You're trying to create it. So in that one, speed is important that you want to bring as much capabilities there uh, fast to the market because there is a pain and there's no incumbents to solve that right now. Right. So it's a little bit of a different product strategy. If it's if you're competing against existing incumbents in an existing market, you have to go with a very strong binary differentiator. There's no point launching the product unless you have a credible binary differentiator to start. If you are going in a new market, optimize for speed. Bring something fast so that before others bring it, so you can start covering the gap and then grow from there. Definitely. So did you have any sort of metrics then? Because you also invest right at unusual. Mm-hmm. What are some metrics you say that the company has maybe product market fit mm-hmm. or validated the market, then they're ready to scale. They have a differentiated product. What are mm-hmm. some things you look for? What are those signals? Unusual, tell you a little bit about unusual. I started unusual with this primarily the concept of that when the when founders start their companies and normally it's like a small team, you are like two, three, four people at that time. You have some idea, you have some expertise in your domain that you are very, and you're passionate about some problem. How do we help? At that time. And what I realized was like, and when I started AppDynamics, I needed most help in the first 18 months, two years. It was the engineer turned first time founder. I didn't know what to do in finding customers and marketing and recruiting. And you know, I needed a lot of help there. And my VCs wouldn't provide help that time. They said, I will wait until you get traction, until you get, we can't spend too much time with you until you get all of the, the traction. And by the time we got traction, we didn't need, I didn't need help because I knew what to do. So I, what I found was that the VC model was almost like, inverted. The founders need most help when they're just starting before traction, before product market fit, before the, you know, that's where they need the most help. Once they have gotten those things, they really don't need as much help because they have learned it. They have figured out as founders, as entrepreneurs, as as CEOs, what to do. They have probably hired like VP of uh, different functions, VP of sales, VP of marketing. So they have a team that can help them do things. So do you really need help from investors at that point? So 
Unusual is designed to invert that, that we help you when you need the most help. When you're just starting, actually, it's mostly pre-traction, pre-product market fit. So we invest when you're just starting. It's, we, 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 we call ourselves, we specialize in zero to one. So we invest you at, invest in you at zero and we help you to take to one. Like in, in, in a B2B world, it's actually literally zero to million dollars of revenue. We invest in you at zero dollars of revenue. And we really deeply help you get to your first million dollars of revenue, maybe million, million two. And after that, you learn and you get mature and we help you recruit the right team and you run from there. So it's a different model. We don't look for metrics as much. What we look for is, are the founders really passionate about this problem? Is this problem large enough? Do the founders have a unique advantage and and insight about that problem? Do they have some technology insight? Do they have some domain deep experience that they have the advantage to win to solve that particular problem? And are these founders committed to the long term to build something big? And that's all we look for. We, because we're normally investing in pre-product market fit and pre, pre-traction pre at, at Unusual. When you look back to app dynamics and even harness, at what point did you say, I have product market fit? Let's, <laughs> let's, let's pour some gasoline on this. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, product market fit is such a, is such a like I, I would say so much has been written about product market fit and talk about product market fit, but still is an abstract uh, uh, concept. So I normally like to divide into two phases of product market. We call it like early product market fit and a mature product market fit. To me, early product market fit, I only feel there is early product market fit at when you have at least hit a million or so of revenue. Uh, you know, it's it, by until a million of revenue or so, you are just pushing it, you know, you're figuring it out, you're selling maybe around half, maybe somewhere in the 500K to a million dollars of revenue in the B2B world and consumer different metrics, let's say. Like, you know, the, the half a million to a million is probably when you start feeling, okay, you have early product market fit, like you can sell this thing. There is the, the message is resonating. The product features, functionality are resonating. People are using it. People are buying it, right? In, in the B2B kind of world that I've been in, AppDynamics, Harness, Traceable, it roughly translates to about, say, 20 to 40 customers. You have 20 to 40 customers who are using your product. They are finding value from it. You've been able to convince them to pay you money. You are in a close to a million-ish uh, ARR. Mm-hmm. That's a good sign that you have an early product market fit. Mm-hmm. More then there is a, this, the mature product market fit. The main difference in a mature market fit is bringing the go-to market element into it. To get to the first half a million or to a million, you are just brute forcing the go-to market. You're finding the leads, whichever way you want. You're finding like your, your, your STRs and BDRs and whatever marketing uh, functions are working. And you find, you're find figuring out, is there a market and is there your product solve that need? The, the, the second phase of it, the go-to market is very important. Your product has to be designed to meet your go-to market. Do you have a freemium model? Do you have an open source strategy? Do you have a, a marketplace model? How do you drive your, your growth? And normally, in my experience, that comes to, you have to feel confident that your go-to market is, is running, that you've figured out, are you selling into enterprise or you're selling into SMB? Or what is the mix of enterprise to SMB? You figure out, are you selling direct or you're selling through channels? You figure out, are you going to sell through inside sales or field sales? All of those things, which is like the go-to market part. And that people think of go-to market and product independently. That's not how it works in modern software companies in, in my experience now. So you have to bring the your go-to market strategy in your product market fit. And that's when you have a mature product market that fit that you figured out this is how we generate leads and this is how we do our our sales motion and these are the kind of sales people we hire or these are the partners we sell through and it's all working as a 
sort of a smooth machine and you can press the gas from here and, and scale. That's to me is a mature product market fit. And for most companies, it, you know, for, for AppDynamics and Harness, I had that feeling only once we hit like around somewhere in the five to $10 million kind of revenue. That by that time, it, it was clear, this is how we're going to, our sweet spot is, this is how we're going to sell it. This is how we're going to accelerate. And then you are ready to press the gas. Then you want to move fast and go, go and try to capture as much of the market. Definitely. There's some great nuggets here. I'm typing them as I go along. I usually don't don't live type very rarely. And this is coming from the heart and I love it. So when you talk about mature product market fit and adding the GTM as a part of it, at, you know, to get to 5, 10 million, because this is a very important thing. I, I had an advisor in my previous company that failed. He asked me to see the marketing plan. I put this marketing plan with so many channels in there. And then... Uh, his name was Hiten Shah. <laughs> he sank in the seat and he said, just burn these slides. He's, if you don't focus on one thing, you're going to fail. You're chasing, like somebody's saying implement yeah. spot, somebody's saying be on social, you're running. So what does that look like when you got to 10 million in app dynamics, how many <laughs> channels were activated or, because a lot of advisors will come and say, Hey, I don't see you on Clubhouse. And then founders sometimes will go and run to club. Like, what does that look like? Is it one channel, one customer, or is it? Well, I think you've got to be a little bit more analytical about it, in my experience, like numbers and measure it. Especially when it comes to marketing, you can measure it. It's easy to experiment. Like say someone says, hey, you should have ads on LinkedIn, or maybe you should be on Clubhouse and that will drive leads to you. So you experiment with it. You put in, maybe spend like a you know $1,000 to put some ads on uh, our campaigns on LinkedIn, let's say, and experiment and see what the results are and was it working or not. And then you increase on things. So I think experiments are totally fine, but your investment should be driven by data after that. Marketing, otherwise you can burn so much money and so much dollars when it comes to... So obviously there is a brand, right? Brand is a little bit... Un- you can't measure easily the what will drive brand, right? Brand, you have to create your share of voice. You are in uh, yeah, for, for your company or for your business. But when it comes to generating leads and demand in business, the more measured and analytical and numbers-oriented you are, you know, the better it is. And I would strongly encourage hire people in marketing who are numbers people on that front. You will have like a lot of great marketers who can't understand the numbers and the and the... Like what will drive leads and like I've put in $10,000 into this channel, would it generate me this much leads or not? That's how you have to operate that. And it's, you know, it, 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 you won't know, like every business is different. Every company is different. What would work to drive your leads is you experiment quickly and then you double down on what's working and you measure and measure and hold your marketing org accountable for that. Definitely. No, that is well said. So then does the same principle apply? Because you said two thirds this time, one third the next time. So you two third, you just basically what I'm hearing constantly is nail it and then scale it. So maybe two third scaling the content, maybe spend some time figuring out the next sort of, let's go into the next point you had mentioned. GTM and sales execution. I want to cover all your points because it's super valuable. Um, what does top GTM and sales execution look like? When did you at AppDynamics decide I need to, I've done founder sales enough. I got to find somebody else. And what does that look like? Yeah, I think that's the, I what I realized was like selling into enterprises uh, is there is a science to it. And if you don't know it, you really can't be very good at it. So I, my advice to most founders is try, if you don't have experience with sales, try to bring in someone who has experience with it and either learn from them or let them do it. Someone who is really good at it. When I was doing AppDynamics, people would be like, oh, don't hire a VP of sales, hire a sales rep, 
to do things. And I was like, I can, but I don't know how to do here. I don't even know how to hire a sales rep. I don't even know how to interview them at this right now. So I would rather have someone who has done this VP of sales or this job before, if I can afford to, like if you have have funding to afford to bring someone, my advice to most founders is try to bring someone who's the the most capable, most experienced, and ideally who have done that job before in another startup, Uh, you know, if some, then you are reducing the risk on it. So that's, and I, in hindsight, I feel that was the best decision I made that I, I, when we were like very small at Dynamics, first five customers, which I did founder sales, I was like, let me try to bring in someone who has done this job before. And I was able to bring someone as a VP of sales to do that. And that really helped because that's, I was able to build a strong sales function. But at any point of time, like once you have to make sure that you do, you have the the right people in sales leadership. Do you have the right people in your, you know, are they doing sales execution? Same thing on the marketing, like it's there's alignment between marketing and sales. Do you have the demand generation models working? And you have to, the, the, when you say, okay, how do you do world-class job at it? I, I, the bar I look at is I used to, what, what I normally go and tell our salespeople in that is imagine our product is bad. Our product is not a good product. Can you sell just on the strength of sales? That our sales execution is so good that we could still find a lot of deals and sell. By the way, I, I say the same thing to the product team. I said, imagine our sales sucks. <laughs> we sell, can, can we sell because our product is so good? That people will buy because that imagine our sales is really bad and can we sell just because our product is so good? And I, I, that's to me, then it becomes both becomes your competitive advantages. Both are meeting that bar. Like in our product is shooting for, imagine our sales is bad and, but our product has to be so good that people will still buy. And our salespeople are shooting the bar for, imagine our product is bad. We are so good in, in sales execution that we could still sell it. Then you have, you have achieved a very, it's a multiplying effect of it is very high. So you have to push for it. Like you have to try to hire the best experienced sales leaders. You have to create the culture of encouraging them. You have to provide them the right resources. You have to, a lot of companies and startups, I feel under value focus on sales and marketing. And uh, it takes some time to learn. You, you got to focus on that. You, know, you can build the best product, but without it, without good sales and marketing, you're still not going to get in front of everyone. That It all comes down to focusing on that. Definitely. Now, when you hire people early on, there are times you run into situations where they were the right people for the company at that time, but mm-hmm. then you outgrow them. Maybe your first VP of sales, you have outgrown. Mm-hmm. How do you handle situations like that? How do you have that conversation? Who do you bring <laughs> at the right time at Series A, B? <laughs> you know, I, I, so I would say the, the hardest thing a startup founder, CEO have to do is that is one of the hardest decisions you have to make and you make and you have to go through those transitions. Like the, the people who are like you, you hire someone at say zero to a million dollars of revenue in say VP of sales or VP of marketing or VP of customer success or all, all different kind of functions. Many of them would not be able to scale after say 10, 15 million of revenue. And someone you hire at, some would, some would, and you want them to. Some that you hire at 10, 15 million of revenue may not scale beyond 60, 70 million of revenue. So the main things that change is like when you're very early, it's all about how fast and scrappy you are. When you are getting bigger, you also want ability to plan and have the right strategy because you are fast and scrappy, but you have a wrong plan in place. You're basically churning a lot of energy and resources, right? So the skills start to change a bit and ability to recruit becomes a big skill as you grow. So it's, it's just different things. And as CEO, is, it's really hard. You hire someone who has worked with you in the trenches for, for say three, four years, and you've achieved to a certain state and for making the decision to bring someone else uh, and change them, that's a very hard thing to do. But as startup CEOs, you have to. 
And, and you, and there's no formula if someone is scaling or not, like how do you judge it? And I look at what skills someone needs to get to the next level and are, do they have those skills? Are they coachable on those skills or, and do we have a time as company to coach them? We need those skills now. And it will take a year for someone to be good at it. We have a year to, to, to wait as a company. That's, that becomes a, becomes a factor. It, it, it's hard. And sometimes you have to make very hard choices. These, the people you work with, they become your friends also. And it's replacing them with some, some, another exec is the hardest thing to do. What, any advice there on the type of conversation or how do you frame it? Or sometimes they know already. And, and maybe other times they feel like, hey, I was slighted. You know, it, 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 sometimes they know, yes. Most of the times they would know. I, I would say it's important to have, keep having the conversation on what is what we need as a company. And also point out like, you know, what we are not getting as a company. And you give them a bit of a chance to get there. If they're not getting there is when, because you don't want to do this lightly as well. You don't want to keep bringing, you know, new execs. So you want to give your, your, your current exec chance to, to get there. And if they, how long of a chance you give depends on the state of your company. You know, if you can't give someone a year to fix something, because if in a year your company won't survive, but in some cases you might be able to give up like, you know, shorter time, longer time, whatever. I think you just have to be open and upfront and it's, there is no easy way to do it. Like you can't be beating around the bush. You have to, when you have to make the, you, when you get to the decision, you have to be firm and decisive about it. That's really the advice I would, I would give to someone. I think for most execs, you want to look for people who make things look easy. If they, you would know, like, you know, if they're drowning in it, they can't cope up with it. What's the current state of it? So then they were good in up to now, but now they're just really drowning in it. And it's, it, and the organization knows the rest of the company knows the rest of the team knows, like, you know, this is a function that's struggling in some ways. So. It's never a surprise to the company in, in my experience, like, you know, when, whenever you do that. Yeah, definitely. People can see the, you don't have to ask what the person is doing. You can just watch the actions and, and tell the story. Mm -hmm. So then as you see these companies go from sort of idea to product market fit to mature product market fit, and then hyperscale, what do you recommend for recruiting? Who in, at the seed stage do you see are the most important players to have? And then uh, the next phase of scaling. Who did you bring on? Seed stage is all about product to me. You have to have the right product managers. Uh, but the product managers, in my advice, should be the founders. So the founders should be the product. If you don't have founders who have that skill set, let's say, then you have to hire someone. Because if you don't have the right product management discipline as, the, as founders or you hire and bring the right people, you're not going to go anywhere. And then you have engineers who will build the product. So that's really the, the, you really need very solid engineers. People who can move fast, they can wear multiple hats. They are, they're not bogged down by process, uh, et cetera. They're self-motivated. That's the kind of engineers you need in early on. And the third thing I, what I like to bring is at least one person who can get me in front of customers. Either the founder have that capability themselves or someone who can just, I really don't need to them to do anything in the meeting. I just need to get the meetings. So as the founders, as who are the product managers can have a lot of customer conversations. So you can do the find your product market fit, et cetera. At Unusual, we offer that as a service. Like we, that is the one of the key services we provide as part of uh, Unusual because I always struggled with it. People will, when I started, I've done people say, you have to find, you have to talk to 75 customers so that you can build the right product market fit. I said, like, how do I get 75 customers to talk to? I don't have, you know, I don't have that many people. I like, how would I find the, in, in a bank, uh, in an IT organization, in a bank, someone to talk to? That's where that unusually offer, we, that's what off, we provide as a service that we will create 
a machine like a, that will call these people and get you these meetings so that you can talk to and find the right product market fit. So I really think only these three things are needed in the seed stage. And most B2B companies, like the product management discipline, who like what product to build and ideally founders should have it, engineers uh, and someone who can get you in front of customers so you can build the best product product and find the best product, iterate it, find your design partners, et cetera. Everything else I would delegate and outsource out like operations and finance and legal and HR. Like you shouldn't hire people at that seed stage. You, you, there are out, enough outsourcing uh, options to do that. As you start scaling beyond that, at some point, I think the once you have that initial product market fit start to happen, one million, yeah. bring sales. My advice to people is try to bring the most capable salesperson you can attract at that time and who has gone through that stage before. Because you are reducing the risk on your business the most by, so that's the person I would say bring then. Marketing is next, depending on what kind of company you are in. You may need very strong marketing support. So I'll bring in a head of marketing. I would say then you can wait for the rest. My advice to most people and what I like to do is you can bring, if you don't have the engineering management experience in the founding team, then bring a VP engineering once you are like maybe 30, 40, 50 engineers. Before that, you don't need a VP engineering before you have a smaller team, engineering team than that. You bring in a VP of customer success kind of person. Once you have 40, 50 customers, you most likely don't need someone. Your engineering team and product team can do the do that. You don't need a VP level person. And then you go from there. The finance and HR and operations, you can wait until you are even bigger and then you start bringing uh, the execs uh, and a team and leaders in, in those later. So if the founders don't have then the engineering management experience, you would still hire maybe like a director level person for a small engineer. Yes. Yeah. Right. If, yeah, I think if founders don't have it, then you have to, right? Someone in the the founding team has to manage your say first 10 engineers, right? You know, if they, it's, if any of the founders don't know how to manage the 10 engineers, uh, then yes, you have to bring someone. Definitely. Because I want to dive into this. It's a very important skill set for founders to have product management. What is good product management discipline? Because some founders sometimes, especially if they're coming from a non-product or engineering background, sales background, then they say, build this and then build this. And like they, they, they it's just the scope creep keeps happening. And so <laughs> Define good product management discipline. Yeah, it's a good question. I think to me, product management, the core of product management always comes with the product instinct. I have learned that like, you know, it's, it's not that product management, you can, it's not completely mathematical that you can just teach to anyone and they become a good product manager. So you have to have the right instinct of what good products mean. And a lot of it comes from putting ability to put yourself in the shoes of your con- consumers, your end users. Can you understand from their from their perspective what things will look like? A lot of times come from your domain expertise. That's where, say, if you if you are domain expert in something that you have feel felt that pain, that pain, you can understand it. You can put yourself in the shoes of your users. That create your a strong instinct on what a good solution to this problem would look like because you're putting you're thinking in in from the point of view of the end user of the of the consumer. So that's to me is the the foundation of it. You can teach everything else, but this you can't teach. They don't have that instinct on what good product would and good experience in this particular problem domain would be. They really can't build good products. So that's the to me is is the first part. Now, if you start becoming like like a bit like say more organized and scientific about it, like you know how do you prioritize what to do and not chase the next shiny thing here and there. So I like to use a sort of a framework, mental framework, which is there are four things you need to, to look in your, you know, your backlogs or what you want to do. It could be a very simple uh, spreadsheet initially or something. I look at there, there are four buckets of things. One is what your customers are asking for. 
So your customers are asking for, I have, you have this feature, but I need this feature. I, I can't deploy it. I can't use it. I can't get much adoption. I can't do that's like the one bucket of things. The second bucket of things is what your salespeople are asking for. Your salespeople are saying like, I, if you don't have this, we can't sell it. We have this deal coming in and this deal needs this feature or this competitor has this feature and we don't have this and we can't sell it. We are losing these deals, et cetera. So that's your second bucket. Your third bucket is what your engineers are asking for. Your engineer saying, hey, we have this scalability issue or we have this architectural problem here and we need to rebuild this and otherwise we it won't work and we'll have production outages to all sorts of things. Like, you know, and it's like technical debt. You have technical debt that is accumulated that your engineers want to work on. So that's the third bucket. The fourth bucket is really actually not coming from these is coming from the product management or the founders. What is the, the vision of your product? Are you making progress towards the vision of your product? And you have to have a, like, you know, where say, this is what you wanted to build to solve this problem and you have a conviction and vision around it. You still have to keep working towards it. So I look at, you have to get a balance of these four in a, in a pretty organized manner It's the and create a healthy tension around it. It's, I like to manage it in, in, in AppDynamics and Harness and Traceable. Like these are your four lists. Like these are the ask from customers. These are ask from sales. These are the ask from, for our technical debt. And this is what we need to do. You know, what And that, some of that has come from just the, the founders or product leaders' convictions on where the market is going and what we need to add to expand our time or add features to be competitive, et cetera. And you always create those four and you go through a balance of which ones you want to take on and what compromises you have to make if you take more of this versus more of that. And that's where the, the science of prioritization and product management will come in. And that's where the discipline part is. Like the right founders should have some discipline around balancing this well and not just chasing things. Uh, here and there. Definitely. Most definitely. And I, I love how you put it. Now, is the balance like 25, 25, 25 across the four? <laughs> I actually like that. I'm going to use it at, at my company too. Great advice. But how do you balance? Uh, uh, it, you know, it could be 25, 25, 25. It could also be, sometimes it could change. Like sometimes we're losing so many deals to our competitors because we don't have these capabilities. And maybe so the second bucket of what your salespeople need to win against those deals and competitors, maybe that takes 70% of your bandwidth for some period. And maybe you are like losing your customers are churning because your customers are unhappy about something. And you want to put a lot of your focus on the first bucket because th- if you don't do those things, your churn is very high. So it's always not 25, 25, 25 like that. But yes, over a year period, it should be around that. But in you may have like periods of two months, three, four months where you're putting a lot of your energy and resources in one of the buckets based on what's what's happening. Definitely. This is a good segue into your fourth point here. Take care of your customers. How do you take care of your customers? <laughs> deliver them what you promised. To me, that is, it all comes down to that. If you deliver what you promised, you'd really take care of them. And I always tell our teams, anyone who's buying from a startup, they are putting their career online, on the line by making a decision to buy from you. Like say, if, you know, it's, if say, if someone in a company bought software from AppDynamics or Harness and, and we are a young startup and not too much uh, maturity in the market yet, et cetera, if it doesn't work for them, for their, for their company, that person may lose their job or may not get a promotion or may get like a, you know, bad performance review, or they may not meet a OKR or something. So we, they are putting their job and their career and their their rep, maybe their reputation online buying from us. So we have to make sure that we do the right thing for that person that was buying from us, right? And a lot of it comes down to we deliver what we promised on what they wanted to achieve. In AppDynamics, we eventually got to the point of making it systematic. And same thing we are do, you know, doing at Harness as well. 
In our sales process, we will do a quick analysis called like business value analysis. This is the business value you're going to get if you buy AppDynamics. We'll say, this is how you do things now. And this is how things you could do with AppDynamics. And this is the value. You, maybe you can quantify the value, et cetera, everything. So that every company does it. You build ROI and all that things. And we were doing like a business value analysis before the sale. But we also started doing like, you know, after the sale, like six months after the sale, we will go and say, okay, let's do analysis of business value realization. Did you realize the value that you thought you would? And it's our job to jointly get you there. Like, you know, for whatever reason, if you haven't realized that value that you thought efficiency or productivity will go up by this or our like, you know, time to do X task will go down by this or whatever it was, right? The value you thought you will achieve. Have you achieved it or not? If you've not, not achieved it, it's our job to get you there or help you in whatever ways to get you there. And if you get your customers to achieve the value that you promised or they wanted to, you have taken care of them. I think at that point, you know, they are good. Like they, were, they, they will get a promotion in their job. They will get, they could be your advocates. They could be a champions. And that's, that to me is the way to get there. Now, coming back to the last point, tell us about building that winning culture, focus on the right culture in the company. Yeah, I think, well, I don't think there is one culture that is necessarily the winning culture. You have to, as my main belief is that as founders, you have to be a bit deliberate about culture. People go and say culture is what forms, like you can't shape it but i don't agree with that you can shape the culture you have to be like you know what kind of culture you would like if you look at google a very different culture than amazon or very different culture than apple but they're all successful companies but you have to have what your if what culture you want to create and be deliberate about it so the culture that i like to create is that it's it's very open and uh, it's very collaborative it's very data oriented it's very transparent if we're ambitious risk taking kind of culture that you shoot for big goals and and be very open about it if you don't meet it it's fine we just are open and transparent about it and very empowering as well you know you just empower people you hire smart people and let them run with things but you create transparency and accountability and measurability around all of those so that's the culture that i i like to build and that's the culture i would like to operate it doesn't mean that is the only culture that could you know that that would work but that's the culture uh for me the the ideal culture would be the thing I, I do like to do is a lot of people talk about how do you find culture fit when you hire? Are you hiring a lot of people? How do you interview for culture fit? And I, I tell our teams, don't interview for culture fit. 100%. It, it, that whole concept of interviewing for culture fit, like HR person asking someone like, oh, would you fit our culture? To me, it's just nonsense. That doesn't make any sense. So means can we teach them to operate in our culture? Are they coachable? If someone worked at Apple, they worked in a very different culture. It's very secretive, this and that. If someone worked at Google, they work in a very open culture. So how would, would you judge them that what culture they are from that person is from? No, because that's a company they work for. That was the company culture. So now when we hire them at Harness or Abdanomics, to me, it's not about what culture they previously worked on. It's like, are they ready to be, to learn and embrace and adapt Harness culture? And in the interview process, we tell them that this is our culture is. So for you to be successful at Harness, these are the cultural values or this is how we operate. And you teach them and you teach them and you educate them again and again. And people like to operate that and you exhibit it. People who do these cultural values are the ones who are getting promotions or the ones who are getting like more responsibility, et cetera. And people will just adapt your culture. That's how you strengthen your culture more and more over time. right? Definitely. The other day I put a LinkedIn post where it almost went viral. I put culture fit is the biggest BS trope in the history of business. You don't need, <laughs> yeah. you don't need to hire people that you can go drinking with. You yeah. need people to align with your values. There's a couple of questions here I want to take. Is uh, is one on your on your revenue at App Dynamics? Did you how did you think about shifting pricing strategies to get to two fifty million ARR at App Dynamics? We didn't really shift it. You want to 
the the one mistake i feel startups do is to price too low so one thing i would say if you want to build a big business don't price too low create value and create a way to justify value and then i started app dynamics as an engineer and first time i was like asking someone for a million dollars like i would be just scared of even thinking about it how can we ask for a million dollars but if you are selling to a large bank where they have their 10 billion dollars of it budget and you can help them save like 100 million dollars a year or something like that like asking them a few hundred million dollars is a very justifiable thing so you have to almost make your pricing align with the value that you will create for someone and it's people will pay and if you're going to save someone 100 million dollars can you ask for 2 million dollars a year 3 million dollars 5 million dollars a year can you justify that value you probably you can so you have to create the pricing that is aligned for what the value people the, your customer perceives and that would be my one advice on the pricing it's not about changing the pricing you just have to align your pricing with the value someone is going to get out of it. one of our most regular uh, attendees akilan asks how have you how did you attract your seed investment for app dynamics how did that happen <laughs> it was hard it was hard so in those times the definition of seed was different like you know what we call seed today was called series a that time it was 5 million dollars series a these days 5 million is is a seed investment but it was very hard like i was a first time founder uh, founder engineer turn founder i pitched to at least 30 or so vcs most of them turned me down at that time people were like you are sole founder we don't invest in sole founders or you are you don't have any business experience you have to we don't invest in that we think the market is too small all kind of things you deal with and it is okay all of those rejections you learn from it and it took me like almost 30 rejections before i got my first term sheet to do that so it wasn't easy <laughs> to get the first funding for 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 app dynamics first funding for harness was extremely easy like i had 30 vcs pitching me take our money take our of money course. <laughs> so, so that was different story the app dynamics wasn't easy and and in a way as a founder you're doing sales as well right like you're selling pitching to investors leveraging your network cold emailing we're at the top of the hour do you want to pick one question here there's so many questions i think a lot we covered as we went through yeah. your journey but yeah. maybe you pick one question you like here <laughs> as speakers pick sure how do you do equity valuation when pre sales from 0 to 1 yeah let's take the, the the valuation at that stage from 0 to 1 pre product market fit pre traction anyone who tells you that there's a numbers equation behind that is just uh, bullshitting you <laughs> there is no there is no numbers thing at that point is investors want to have a certain ownership in the companies and then beyond that is just demand supply how competitive the deal is how much interest there would be in that particular company that particular founding team but you really don't have metrics and i i i almost think like any investor who's too focused on metrics in the 0 to 1 stage is really not the right person at that stage you have a lot of investors who are focused on a lot of metrics from your cac ratio and all sort of things right they don't apply in 0 to 1 0 to 1 is all about is the market problem important and large do you have the product market fit and the right product differentiation to, to address that and is a team good is is team strong is is this the winning team so and it, that's what people would investors should be looking at nothing else metrics doesn't matter in the 0 to 1 at that point and then you just you know how competitive the deal would be so if you're a founder and you want to get the best valuation make it competitive don't you know pitch to more investors get more offers don't make it just one or two the more competitive it is the likely the higher valuation you're going to get definitely uh one one question here was what does unusual look for and i think i i guess is that why you named the company uh, yeah. venture fund unusual because you were unusual in a way single founder <laughs> time entrepreneur no, it, 
well, that is part of it. There is a bit of, but it's not that because unusual ventures is unusual. Our approach is unusual. You know, our approach at unusual is to really help founders in that zero to one stage. And we almost specialize in that by providing very deep help in that. So if you uh, take capital from unusual, we provide, if we become your acting VP of sales, we become your acting VP of marketing, we become your acting VP of recruiting. So we help you with the functions you don't have likely have experience as founders at that stage. And you don't have the ability to recruit those people at that stage because they don't want to join you. And, and now like, how would you hire a good VP of sales before you have any revenue traction? So we become your acting VP of sales at that point so that we can get you to the revenue traction and which is a very different model than any venture fund. And I wanted to do it based on my experiences myself. It's like, what would I have gotten most help out of at Dynamics or Harness or like, you know, from VCs at that stage? It's like someone just gets in the trenches and help me things that, and do things that I don't know how to do well, or I can't even hire people to do that well at this stage, because that will change the, the you know, our trajectory significantly. So that's, it's a very unusual approach and unusual model. And that's why we call it unusual. But we also look for unusual founders. That's also part of it. We like high diversity, all kind of backgrounds. We don't follow like one, any kind of a specific formula. So that's definitely part of our, our model as well. Yeah, definitely. So do you invest in post-product sort of pre, pre-revenue startups at all? Yes, we do. We do. So we, we look for that. Well, those ones, yes. The post-product, post-early revenue, we look at, still we are looking at the product market fit. We're still looking at the team. We're still looking at the market opportunity. But at that point, you start looking at also the ability to execute. What are we seeing? Like, are the customers happy? Are the, is the founding team learning to execute on go-to-market and sales? Because the best founding team will be like extremely good in the product and their domain. But their ability to learn, go to market and sales, uh, that's the, so if you're starting to get there, you want to see that is this team exhibiting those signs and you start seeing those. If the, and normally our sweet spot at Unusual, we normally invest only in like seeds or like early series A's. We don't do beyond that. We don't, we're not growth investors. Awesome. It was a great session. It was free advisory for me as well as I aspire to be <laughs> Bansal here. As you look back on your journey, what do you wish you did more of? And what do you wish you did less of? I'm pretty, let's say, in many ways, content on the in the journey on it. I would say when I started at Dynamics, I wished I had better understanding of investors and VCs and managing board. And I spent a lot of time doing that. I wished I didn't have to. I like to spend time building products and competing in the market. Not too much on the managing your investors and board, et cetera. So that's something I wish I had to do less. And I'm doing less of that now. So that is good. To me, it's it, what my passion is actually product. I like building good products, like excellent products and going after markets. That's what I thrive in. So I would like to do, want to do more and more of that, that I could build really good products and, and build more products to the market that solves pain and problem areas that I'm interested in. That's, so it's, that's what I would want to do more and more. Of. Definitely. Thank you so much, Jyoti. You're such a humble human being. You're one of the best entrepreneurs I met. Wishing you great success, wishing, wishing you many more unicorns, not stopping at Harness, but traceable and everything else. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a wonderful hey. weekend coming up. Always great to talk to you, Lloyd. I need some traction. Thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the Traction Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star review. And you can find more information and all the resources mentioned in today's episode at boast.ai. That's B-O-A-S-T dot A-I forward slash blog.